0: Hey guys, this is the Real Life Monopoly podcast. This is your co-host, Jeffrey Donis, alongside my partners and brothers, Kenneth and Kerwin Donis. We are real estate investors and the point of our podcast is to help you reach your financial goals, which will allow you to have time to focus on your true passion so that you can live not only a happier but more fulfilled life. Enjoy the show. Hey guys, welcome to today's show. Today we'll be having Adam Balsinger. Adam is a multifamily real estate investor. He is the current operator of a few multifamily real estate syndication deals, and he's also invested passively in some. Adam also runs a wholesaling business in Philadelphia that's very successful, and in today's show, he kind of just discusses his plan on transitioning full-time into the multifamily space. So without further ado, let's get right to it. Thank you for tuning in. This is your co-host, Jeffrey Donis, alongside my brother today, Kenneth Donis. Today on the show, we're going to be having Adam Balsinger out of Charlotte, North Carolina. Adam, do you mind introducing yourself to the audience?
1: No. Uh, First of all, guys, thanks for having me. Uh, Pleasure to be on. But so, uh, as you said, Adam Balsinger, I'm out of uh, the Greater Charlotte area here in North Carolina. Uh, I've been a full-time real estate investor for seven or so years now, something like that. And I'm originally from Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, moved down here to Charlotte with my wife. About three and a half years ago, I got started in real estate doing single family fix and flips. My business has kind of evolved over the years. I basically am am a partner in two different real estate businesses today. My fix and flip business morphed itself into a wholesaling business over the years, which I am A partner in i have a partner up in philadelphia we wholesale in the greater philadelphia area essentially uh, exclusively and then i had acquired some rental properties over the years that was kind of the whole idea behind doing the fix and flips right was i was going to stack cash from the fix and flips and then buy buy you know single family rental properties at that point like i wasn't saying single family rentals i was like i want to buy a rental house like i just want rentals right so I wound up with 18 doors and push can you know all come you know. Long story short, we weren't making the type of money on those that I I had anticipated when you know you have 18 doors and you know the whole idea behind real estate in general was was um, passive income and financial freedom and. You know, at the rate that I was going with where I was at with the 18 doors, I used to joke that I was going to be 65 by the time I had enough doors to retire. So, you know, I was always a believer in real estate. Uh, I'm a real estate over stock market guy. Like I, I believe that there's more, you know, security and control, I guess, that I have over my outcome in, in real estate. So I still wanted to build a portfolio, but it it became like how do I do this at scale? You know, like onesie twosie houses at a time was going to take forever to get the financial freedom. So I wound up investing some money. I did a guru class in, uh, focused on real estate syndication, multifamily syndication, so larger apartment complexes. And so that's actually right now kind of my second business. Uh, it's myself and two partners. And um, so we're in the syndication space. We've been at the syndication game for About a little over three years, it took us probably a year to a year and a half to get our first deal. I think we made probably every mistake that you're told, you know, hey, don't do this, do this instead. And we did it anyway, uh, despite the guru training. And, uh, but so we've successfully syndicated now three multifamily deals. I was an LP in two deals before. So I've been in five deals total. The deals that we've syndicated um, are North Carolina, South Carolina, and Georgia. That is our home base. That's our target market. And, um, you know, so syndication, we're no money really of our own in those deals. Um, you know, so raise all that capital, got funding um, for the debt, uh, a little over 200 doors, about 15, 16 million assets under management. So that's me. That's the intro.
0: Awesome. Awesome. So you kind of touched on a lot there. Um, to kind of go back into your wholesaling business, I know that you said that you had a fixed and flip business first, you then started wholesaling and eventually you got into syndication. Do you mind touching on whether or not you scaled that business up until the point where you were now just the business owner rather than an employee within the business? And if, if that was the, the transition path that you took or was it something that you kind of just were doing both at once?
1: Yeah, that's a really good question. And I think that you know one of the benefits of of this type of a podcast right and the fact that you guys spend a little bit more time and talk through some stuff is that your listeners get to hear more of the like the true reality as you're you're looking to build some of these businesses when people are simply digesting you know 60 and, and 120 second like micro bits of content it's always the good stuff, the good stuff, the big checks, the success, the wins, and the reality is, is that the should, this shit is hard, right? I mean, you're talking about building a business. I think the statistics are like 80% of small businesses go out of business in their first year. Like the overwhelming majority don't make it a single yeah. year. So, you know, <clears throat> I learned, I think, not super quickly because I'm stubborn but quickly enough that there's a lot of different kind of paths you can take within real estate to achieve your ultimate goals and i think a lot of us get caught up in that like i'm a i'm grinding i'm a hustler and we like get ourselves trapped in that phase and it becomes like this badge of honor that we wear but it's like who cares like if you grind or if you don't, it doesn't matter. What matters is your outcome. Like, you know, you could be a horrible athlete and work your butt off to be a good quarterback and still suck. Like, it. you know what I mean? Like, it doesn't matter how much you've worked it. If you still blow, like, you're still trash. It doesn't really matter. So, you know, when I started doing fix and flips, I was having a lot of difficulty scaling that business to the point where I could be hands off. So I was essentially everything. Uh, I was out looking for deals. I was analyzing all the deals. I was walking the properties you know, I was staying on top of construction. We were doing five, six, seven houses a year, something like that. So we were doing okay volume, but it wasn't enough to, you know, it wasn't a substantial enough amount of income that really would allow me to hire and, and kind of put people in place. Right. So As you're building a business, it's really like all you at first until you have enough volume and enough revenue that you can kind of begin hiring people out or you're putting that stuff on a credit card. You're going into debt to afford to do that. Right. So it was at first it was how do I figure out how to do one of these successfully, right? And then you do one and it's like, okay, and then after you do a couple, it's okay, I know how to do this. It's just a matter of finding enough opportunities to be able to build a business out of it instead of like a really time consuming hobby, which which is what I had, right? So guys, I tried so many different things. I mean, like I was buying off of the MLS, I was buying off of wholesalers, I was at the um, the auctions that Philadelphia does in the city, like the in-person auctions, I was buying, trying to buy off of like auction.com and, and Zome, X-O-M-E. I don't even know if Zome is how you're supposed to pronounce that, but like all those auction sites, right? I was on all of them. So what I wound up doing was I, I figured, okay, I'm going to bring construction in-house. So I brought construction in-house for a year i gc'd our own projects for a year thinking we can save money on construction we can do more deals and we did save money on construction but it took us a little longer to get the projects done because newsflash i'm not a general contractor i was learning it as i went Um, so i wasn't as effective and efficient as somebody who's been doing it for 20 years and i was also so busy running from the job site to home depot and lowe's to buy materials and crap for jobs that I didn't have time to look at any more deals. So we were saving money, but it wasn't helping to grow the business at all. It was just more work for me to do. It was like backwards of, of what the the real goal was. So I actually had met a guy through networking uh, in the greater Philadelphia area, um, you know, meetup whatever he was doing fix and flips. He had done a handful. He was running into some of the same issues, not being able to find enough good deals. And actually, he ran an HVAC business. And so he wound up becoming my HVAC guy. Um, And so we would talk all the time because he was doing my HVAC jobs. And it was always like, oh, you know, how's business? How's how's this job? How's that job? And so we decided that we would split the marketing costs to do some direct to seller marketing. And so the idea was really was that we were going to take turns cherry picking deals and that we would just feed our own pipelines through uh, kind of a joint marketing budget. And what happened was we kind of fell into a couple wholesale deals. I think probably our second or third wholesale deal was like a 30K um, piece of cake, like no title problems, no real objections. You know, it was like the perfect wholesale deal. I don't think I've ever done one that was that easy off of a bandit sign, 30 K boom. And we were just at the time doing fix and flips. I was doing no money out of pocket fix and flips, right? So I was borrowing money from a hard money lender, probably four out of five times and then covering the spread with private money. Um, you know, relative friend growing network and, um, you know, I was looking to make 30 grand on a flip. And so it was like, six months fighting with contractors the whole time, wholesale, like never even had to take title to the property, it was a really easy decision. So um, we both decided screw it, we're not going to bother trying to do fix and flips anymore. And we're just going to go all in on wholesaling. Uh, this is now our fourth year that we're wholesaling. And really the first one, two, first two, two and a half years, it was just kind of us doing it, you know, so we were not really trying. We didn't try to scale really at all until last year, um, you know, putting systems in place. You have fears about scaling like, you know, um, so we finally kind of made the made the decision to jump into um, hiring some people last year. It was a great decision. Um, you know, some people worked out, some people didn't. Wound up being a really good thing for our business, um, and really, honestly, the revenue didn't even spike that much. It was just that the amount of time that was available for me and my other partner increased. And we were like, "Well, if we can free up a free up time and do more volume and revenue, like that's the perfect st- uh, perfect storm, right?" So, um, we're still kind of in the process, guys, of getting all that worked out. You know, I I really think that it's it's a never ending thing in most cases. You know, because especially with the day and age that we live in now, like there's so many changes and things move so fast that like you're you're probably, especially in the wholesaling space, like you're kind of pivoting a lot. You know, so you have a really good direct mail system built out, but then it's like. Well, now all these people are SMS texting, so we've got to figure out how we can add that like marketing channel to our existing business. And and uh, I don't know if you guys have heard of it, but the book Mastering the Rockefeller Habits by Vern Harnish talks about when you add just any one, even one minor change to a small business makes it exponentially more complicated so you may only add one marketing channel but you might need two or three new softwares to do that channel to sync up with your other databases you need to bring on people to manage that whole process so um you know i think that it's going to kind of constantly be something that's being tweaked and fine-tuned um that book actually that same exact book The author says that you need to treat your systems in your business like a closet at your house. Um, So usually one closet always winds up being like the where you throw shit closet. So you're kind of constantly breaking systems within your business. um, And the author recommends doing it once a quarter and then literally rebuilding it from scratch. So every quarter, whether you really need to or not, you're focused on um, breaking and then improving your business.
0: Yeah, and I actually hadn't heard of that book. Like I've heard of it, but I've never read it. Uh, it's definitely something I'll check out. And I appreciate that recommendation.
1: It, it is, is like a textbook, so just get ready. <laughs> Don't read it late at night, or you're gonna be asleep <laughs> like immediately. I'll
0: keep that in mind. I appreciate that. Um, going into the process of you making the decision to go into multifamily, because I know you touched on the economies of scale, and you just saw that you know you were not scaling at the pace that you wanted to in order for it to make sense in single family which is the exact same reason why we chose to move from single family over into multifamily we we similarly to you started in wholesaling and we did one fix and flip and we just decided you know what single family is it's something that was going well for us but the ultimate goal for us has always been multifamily so do you mind just going into how the process looked and you know what why you made that decision and what were the steps that you first took in order to
1: yeah. So just to, the the question is really more about how that why and how that decision to, to go multifamily was made. Yeah. So I I think, you know, it was really from a scale perspective that, you know, it's easier to so so if you're buying a single family house and you're gonna rent it out, you still need to find tenant or you still need to find a deal, right? And if you're buying off of the MLS, like you're already starting off on the wrong foot. Um, if you're if anybody on this is listening and you're thinking about buying, like there's a saying amongst real estate professionals that is the MLS or if you're in multifamily loop net is where deals go to die. Right. So most good deals take place either off market, direct buyer to seller or they're essentially the, the they're put together through a real estate agent or a broker but they still there it's a pocket listing means meaning it never sees um you know a public forum right so if you're look if you're doing single family you still have to go out and find the deal which takes time then you also have to go out and if you're not buying cash you have to get debt on the property right so you're going through a finance application Then you have to close on the property. You ideally, if you are looking for passive income, you have a a property manager in place that's going to manage that property for you, right? So you have to find them, you got to get them on board, you get them in place. And then you have to stay on top of your property manager. You can't just hire a property manager for a single family house and think that they're going to do a great job, right? You have to inspect what you expect. You've constantly got to be looking at your numbers to see what's going on with the property. So I have to do all that work if I buy a single family house. If I buy a hundred unit property, I do all those same steps, right? I still have to find the deal. Uh, I still have to get the debt for it. I still have to interview property managers, get insurance, all that stuff. It's really not that much more work to buy a hundred unit property than it is to buy a single family property, right? Um, but if I buy a 100 single family properties, it's way more work to do that stuff with a 100 different houses, right? Um, then you look at the context of, okay, if I have a 100 doors on one property, they're all right next to each other. It's super easy to manage that, right? You can have one person just on site all day and they can take care of that. If I have, if I'm in, so I'll use the Charlotte area, for example, people that own rentals in Charlotte, they'll own in five or six counties, neighboring counties. So somebody could theoretically have 100 doors spread out over an area that covers multiple counties, and it might be two hours to get from the eastern you know, border, the furthest east house to the furthest west house what that does is that creates a management headache. So it's more difficult to manage than those properties. And then if you're talking about from just a uh, cost to maintain a maintenance perspective, um, you know, 100 roofs versus, uh, let's say that you have those 100 units are in, um, you know, 10 buildings, I have 10 roofs. Granted, the roofs are bigger, but I'm gonna spend less money uh, maintaining that property. Right. And then you also have, when you're talking vacancy, if I have a mortgage on a hundred unit property, I could have 10 people move out. I'm still at 90% occupancy. I'm still covering the nut on my mortgage with no problems. Well, if I have a single family house and the tenant moves out, like I'm covering the nut on the mortgage. So there's a lot of reasons in my mind that commercial multifamily makes sense. I think the biggest thing that prevents people from even going there mentally is that it's bigger and it has a bigger dollar amount. And so people get like, they don't even think it's possible to do bigger deals like that. And I'm totally guilty of that. Like it would, it never crossed my mind to that I would be buying a 92 unit apartment complex when I first got into real estate, like I was trying to figure out how the hell to you know, flip a single family house. And now we're like, all right, well, you know, if we buy this 45 unit deal, how long is it going to take us to renovate all 45 of those units? Right. So it's just like, I think the more that you get into it, and the more that you see other people doing bigger stuff and having success, and you're like, well, if that person's doing it, like, I think I should be able to figure it out, too. Um, so I think that's really the thing that prevents people from going bigger sooner. You know, I run a multifamily meetup here in Charlotte. I'm all the time saying, go bigger as big as you're comfortable with. Go there. And I have people that have been coming to that meeting for a year and a half that are like, I want to start with a quad. And, <laughs> and I'm up there like every month, go big go big like you know 50 to 100 is where you should start in my opinion and there's still like i want four because i can't like mentally wrap my head around 10. it's like perfect start at four if that's what you can like wrap your head around then start there because you know it's a built-in excuse if you can't wrap your head around 50 uh, you're not going to put in the effort the same way that you would you know what i mean
0: Oh, yeah, and it's better to start rather than just sit on the sidelines the whole time. That's what a lot of people end up doing is they'll just feel like, well, you know, there's so many things that you can do and it just, you know, analyzation, uh, paralysis analysis is what they call it, where you just sit on the sidelines yeah. and never really make a decision. Um, so I know that you kind of you know, just went for it. Do you mind going into how you did your first deal and maybe going into uh, the capital raising and um, just all the parts of that deal. You can just start by how you kind of found the deal um, and just kind of take us through that process.
1: Sure. Uh, So, so we, like I mentioned, we had done like every cardinal sin that you're told not to do when you first get started, we did. So probably the biggest one and, and for any of your audience that is, is really looking to get into multifamily. So we had like picked a market right? I use air quotes a lot. Mm -hmm. I'm just realizing how many times I've done that. It's been like seven. So anyway, you know, we picked a couple markets and that was where we were starting and we picked our backyards. So it was me in the greater Philadelphia area. Um, My partner, Charles, actually now currently lives in Charlotte as well. But when we first teamed up, he was in Brooklyn. So, you know, we were looking in like not five boroughs. We weren't that crazy, but yeah, you know, we were looking in the Northeast, um, in a lot of the kind of growth markets in the Northeast, and we just were having all kinds of trouble finding things that made sense financially. The cap rates are compressed, the cost per doors are pretty high. And so, you know, before you know it, we're like, oh, well, here's this deal in Virginia, let's look at that one. And then you look at one deal from a broker in Virginia, and now that broker sends you everything, right? So then the Northeast become, and Virginia becomes also, oh, now we've got something in West. Oh, now we're looking in West Virginia. Before you know it, we're looking in Tennessee. And it was like, guys, it, I swear to God, like a couple months went by and it was like, if it was east of the Mississippi, like we were looking there. We had been to Indiana, we had been to Alabama, like we'd been to Georgia and it was insane. And it was like, we had to relearn the market almost every single time, you just for three people, you can't be an expert in seven cities, let alone 17, which is what it felt like we were trying to do, right. So, you know, I had relocated down here to Charlotte. And we were kind of having a discussion of like, hey, we should probably pull the reins back in here and like settle on a market. And so we finally settled on uh, North Carolina, South Carolina. Um, and all during this time, we had not only been meeting brokers, um, you know, mortgage brokers, insurance people, property managers, but we were also doing a ton of networking, meeting other operators and key principals or sponsors, because we knew we were going to need a sponsor, uh, to do our first deal. And so actually one of the things that we did was we decided that we wanted to invest as LPs in some other deals. Um, Number one is a credibility booster. So we weren't just going to brokers and saying like, Hey man, I'm this new person that's never done a deal before and you should send me all your good stuff. Right? So that conversation changed to, you know, we're part owners in two syndications totaling 330 units, and we're looking to grow our portfolio. And you know, what do you got? This is what our criteria is. So, That helped a lot, um, just being taken more seriously by brokers. But one of the other things, and we didn't really even think of it this way when we did it, but we were able to develop pretty good relationships with those operators, right? Like just during the process, having conversations with them. And so uh, one of those guys, uh we went to lunch with you know all kinds of he, we had looked at a bunch of different deals with him and he was going to potentially be a sponsor for us he actually sent us our first deal was like hey guys this just came across my desk in atlanta now, i know you guys are looking for north carolina south carolina but like atlanta is not that far out of south carolina it's only like an hour beyond south carolina right and he was just like, I think it looks like it could be a good deal, but I'm, he was doing two, three, 400 unit deals at the time. It was a 92 unit property. And he was like, if you guys take a look, you like the deal and you want to take a run at it, like I'll be KP. And uh, you can use my track record and I'll sign on the loan. So we said, okay, well let us take a look. And then that wound up being the, the that wound up being our first deal. And one of the reasons we won that deal was because the seller knew our sponsor. So we were actually, I believe it, we were the lowest offer in the highest and best round, but the seller knew our, our partner and knew that he owned a bunch of similar assets in his portfolio. And you guys know this uh, by now, right? Like it's not always top dollar. It's also shorty to close. And so the seller went with us. And so it was really that relationship that we had kind of built and fostered over time that wound up being what got us our first deal. We didn't even find that property ourselves.
2: Kind of touch on that. Um, So that's awesome that you kind of mentioned that relationships. We definitely believe that relationships are, you know, with brokers, with other people that are in the business. That's very important. Um, But if you don't mind kind of going into uh, what happened after you found that it was a deal Um, like I'm sure you guys kind of had to raise the money um, you know bring investors on with you and and you got to the best and final round so just kind of explain how that went Um, and yeah just kind of touch base on that
1: yeah so it was a total train wreck (laughs) it probably wasn't that bad but looking back on it you know like we've we've developed better systems now obviously the third time through than the first time through so i will say that uh we totally kind of had a misconception going in of of, we thought we were going to be able to raise money pretty easily um you know i'm coming from a single family fix and flip background i had a pretty decent investor base as it was that was lending on single family fix and flip so in my mind it was like i like these deals better they're obviously going to like these deals better. Right. And, um, yeah, that wound up not being the case when, when they heard, you know, I am going to use your money for three to five years. They were like, no, I give me 40%. I don't care. Like I want my, I need it back in 12 months, you know? So, um, we were able to bring some of those people over, but nowhere near as many as we thought. So, you know, I would be lying if I said we were like really confident that we were going to have uh, like have the the raise fully met. Um, even like two weeks prior to settlement, it was like everybody was a little nervous and, you know, we were all kind of hitting the phones um, seemingly up until the last minute. It wasn't really up until the last minute, but it feels that, you know, it felt that way going through it. Um, but so, you know, we contributed to the raise um, and then our, uh, sponsor also wound up contributing to the raise. So he not only was the KP, but he also contributed on the, on the equity as well. Awesome. And those were conversations that we had going in was, you know, Hey, listen, we think we can raise this much, but you know, this is our first one. So, you know, you may need to be able to bring some of your people to the, to the deal. So those were conversations that we had uh, ahead of time. I would not recommend having that conversation, you know, like two weeks prior to settlement. Yeah, (laughs) problem.
0: Yeah, that's awesome. That's awesome story. Uh, Going into the raising capital aspect of it, what were some objections that you, you know, were forced to overcome and and maybe weren't able to overcome on those investors that you were trying to transfer from your single family business over to your multifamily syndicate?
1: Yeah. So. So the biggest thing when, so, right, I have the wholesaling business. So a lot of the people that I was working with were um, kind of either they were actively doing deals themselves or they were lending on projects similar to the deals they do themselves. Right. So they like, and I'm not, this isn't all of them by any stretch of the imagination, but the overwhelming majority of them, it was like, wait, This isn't 70% of ARV analysis, like, you know, like mine totally. It was like, it may as well have been a different, like I may as well have been pitching to them like private equity, um, you know, like SaaS based, you know, web platform software solution. Uh, It was like a completely different beast. So I think the biggest challenge is with trying to take that existing investor base and just transition them over. Was that it was new and it wasn't something that we had had really kind of pre-paved for so if i could go back i would have had more conversations with those folks up front detailed conversations of hey listen you know i'm pursuing different opportunities now let me run you through what one of these looks like and let me know if you would be interested there were really high level conversations that took place before we needed the the actual raise, but it wasn't that detailed. And I think that really, if there's anything that I can say in terms of some of the stuff I've learned in raising capital, it's that too many people expect too fast of a turnaround for their investors. You know, most of our investors, unless they're high net worth and they're already pursuing alternative investments and those people are out there but a lot of them prioritize experience and track record not all of them of course right but so not having that track record is a uphill battle when you're dealing with somebody that's already kind of actively pursuing this type of an investment so there's a lot of education that we have to do cuz most of our investor base are used to put your money in the S P five hundred, um, you know, 401k plans, hiring a financial advisor that puts them into a couple stocks. Like this concept is not mainstream. So it takes some 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 getting used to and, and warming up for some people. And even then sometimes they don't take action. It's like everything that they want in an investment, but um you know, fear prevents them from, from moving
0: forward. Yeah, 100%. And a uh, big thing that we've noticed from a lot of our investors is it does take time to nurture those leads. And also we have to educate them. Um, do you mind kind of going into how you approach that education process? Is there something that it, it's like standard protocol that you kind of just go through with it? Or is it kind of case by case? I'm sure it is. But do you mind just kind of touching on that and kind of what your method?
1: Yeah. So. So uh, we're actually in the process of going through Michael Blanc's platform builder program. Okay. So one of the things that I learned through that program was that you have to get really crystal clear about who your ideal investor is, Um, you know, in the marketing space, that's known as your avatar, your perfect ideal customer slash investor, because your your brand and your content and everything that you put out is going to be geared towards talking to that individual to try to get that person to come to us right so you guys started out this um whole interview by kind of asking me about going from employee to business owner in my wholesale business right so You need to think systemization as you're building your syndication business and what you want is a McDonald's repeatable process, right? So your conversations with your investors really shouldn't be case by case. You should have a structure that you take everybody through. Now there may be extenuating circumstances to that where say somebody Knows more than your typical investor, and maybe you can skip through some of those phases. But I still am trying to take every investor through the exact same steps. Now, part of the creation of that investor avatar is defining where they stand in their knowledge and awareness of real estate as an investment vehicle. And then specifically commercial multifamily syndications. So you're basically ranking this person on a scale of like zero to five, five being I'm presently looking to invest passively in a multifamily syndication, right? Like super duper specific. You don't have to educate that person as much. They might be ready to invest tomorrow if you find them, right? But guess what? Everybody's going after that person because they're the low hanging fruit. So the opposite end of the spectrum is this person loves investing in the stock market, has never once thought about investing in real estate, and doesn't even think that there's a problem with investing in the stock market. That person's too far, right? You can't sell somebody if they're not aware that they have a problem. They could have a really big problem but if they don't know it you're trying to convince this person now to believe something that they don't believe so we made the decision to target people kind of right in the middle um they know a little bit they're interested in investing in real estate but they might not know much about multifamily. you know they're kind of like what i was when i was first getting started like rental real estate sounds great and i'm just thinking of a single family house because i don't know any better right like that's my avatar so if you think of okay how am i going to work that person through from meeting me and engaging with my content through to investing with me um you know it's really a lot of education and then there's some phone calls that are going to be sprinkled in there and then as you guys also know right you've got your 506b and your 506c so we do Generally speaking, 506B is in boy. So, you know, we're not advertising our deals on a public forum. So we have to qualify our investors. And so that's also one of the reasons that we have a couple steps in that process is because that enables us to develop the, um, I'm going to do it again, the substantive relationship that the SEC requires.
2: So, well, yeah, that's a, I definitely like that um you know kind of conveyor belt method it just keeps everything going very smoothly but to kind of touch on something you said yeah funnel. exactly the funnel
1: it's a funnel right i mean like literally every marketing and you know sales biz dev in general is a funnel all of it and it's like how do you get the most people at the top because that means you get more people coming out the bottom correct <laughs> The less interaction that you can have in those different steps and those different filters, the better.
2: Yeah, I 100% agree. Um, but to kind of touch on that, I know that at the beginning you had said you have always been the kind of person to believe that investing in real estate is the best investment versus the stock market. Um, if you don't mind me asking, like, what are some key um, kind of principles as far as why investing in real estate might be better than investing in the stock market?
1: Yeah. So there's a lot of reasons, but there's also a lot of reasons that people might prefer the stock market over real estate. Right. So part of it boils down to um, you should really be getting to know your investors on the first conversation. So part of my questioning where I'm going through and anybody that's a good salesperson or good influencer, we do more question asking to identify is this Is there an issue there? Does what I have to offer people matter to this person, right? Is this a qualified individual that I can deal with? Um, So my opinion, right, um, is that real estate is better for a couple big reasons, but in my mind, the three big ones are passive income, right? Now you can get a dividend stock, but in my mind, the passive income being spit off by your tenant is a little bit more reliable than your dividend, right? Not all stocks have dividends and those dividends can change. So passive income, number one, Um, volatility, number two. So real estate has much less volatility than the stock market does. So The statistic, I believe, is that since the Great Depression, so this is going back almost 100 years, real estate has had four fewer downturns than the stock market over that time period. And so volatility can really kill someone's, um, kill the value of someone's uh, investments, right? If you have you have a 20% gain today and a 20% loss the next day, like you don't wind up being equal because that percentage is based off of what you're starting with, right? So you lose 10% today, you gain 10% tomorrow, you're still behind where you started, right? Um, So simple math tells you that, 110% drops you down to 90, 10% gain on 90 puts you at 99, right? So you're only one behind in this example, but that's how that stuff works. And when you hear average returns in the stock market, it's taking all of those ups and downs into consideration. Um, So like with the great recession, it took for some stocks, it took like eight years for people to gain back the value that they lost with that big downturn, so if you have four fewer downturns, that winds up being like extrapolated over time, that could be a really big difference in someone's nest egg. Um, so the, the 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 less and it's pretty significant amount less volatility, um, and then tax benefits are number three. So you know you have income that you make through a stock you're getting taxed on that, you know, you're not like, what are you doing to to mitigate your tax burden? Nothing. With real estate, there's ways that you can can mitigate your tax burden. You know, if you own that real, like you have business expenses that you can use to write off. um, So you can actually cut down your profits through those business expenses, but then you can do cost segregation, bonus depreciation. You know, and then what that does is it increases your passive losses, which you have as paper losses that you can then use to offset some of your gains. Um, so there's just a lot more that you can do um, from a tax perspective to to reduce your your taxable income. And it's all legal.
0: Yeah, that's exactly what uh, a lot of our content is based around. I'm just trying to just explain the differences between both of the investments. Um, and it's something that a lot of people, I feel like, aren't really aware of since real estate's not something that majority of people are invested in. The stock market is definitely more popular. So I definitely agree with all those. Um, next, we would like to go into our express round.
1: Yeah, I mean, you, you, you get a 10% return in, in the stock market and a 10% return in real estate, like those 10% returns aren't the same. Even if you own that investment for the same period of time, you know, because you're able to utilize things like cost segregation, bonus depreciation, some of those other things. So, you know, you wind up with like on paper the same return. Uh, it really isn't the same.
0: And in real estate, you're able to also help people. For example, if you're in affordable housing, you can help people get into a house that they can afford rather than stocks. It's really just helping a business that's most likely, you know, making money just for the sake of profiting um, rather than just, you know, in, in real estate, you have the opportunity of helping people. Um, but yeah, so we, we we always at the end of our shows, we like to go into an express round where I'll ask you a few questions. Um, it's just about five. So if you're ready, we can get right into it.
1: Fire away, awesome. I'm ready. So
0: what is the biggest mistake that you've made in real estate?
1: I think that the biggest mistake, so I have a, I actually, I have a really good one. So um, shiny object syndrome, trying to do too much at once. So if I could go back in time, I would not have tried to grow two real estate businesses at the same time. That was in hindsight, really stupid. Um, you know, the wholesale business, I it probably like the best way to describe the way that I thought about it at the time and justified it in my mind was like, I love the wholesale business. I think it's a really great way to help people and produce consistent revenue. Um, but I really, I mean, it's still active income. So if it's not me, putting in the work. It's somebody on my team doing it. Um, But so it's kind of money for today, right? Wholesale puts food on the table today. Um, And then it allows me to stack cash to then put that cash towards other things that are going to pay me tomorrow. But the syndication business, for any of your audience that's listening, um, it's really not realistic for somebody getting into syndication to be like, I'm going to pay my bills this year in syndication. you're probably not you're probably not going to pay your bills in syndication for like two or three maybe four or five years um because it's a long term game right you might get some acquisition fees up front but you're probably not running that deal totally by yourself so you're going to have a kp who's going to get part of that acquisition fee you may need to bring in co-GPs that are going to get part of that acquisition fee. So even if you have a two $300,000 acquisition fee, you ain't getting all of it. And for you guys, the Donis brothers, there's a couple of you, right? So you're splitting, let's say you split a $200,000 acquisition fee 50-50. Well, now you got 100 amongst you and your brothers, right? So like there's three of you, now you get 33 grand. Like what are you doing with 33 grand? Like not much. So... So anyway, long story. Um, so that was the kind of the reasoning behind continuing the wholesale business while growing the syndication business. But it definitely slowed us down. Um, you know, you can be successful doing two things. It's just going to take longer than if you focus on one, make it successful and then add on the second focus on that, make it successful. Right. So. You really want to, and I'm not. And but this applies to the, to to like wholesaling too. Like get good at one marketing channel, systemize it, and then add on the second marketing channel. Same thing. You want to do fix and flips, and you want to do syndications. Pick one, master that, build out your team, systemize it. You know, hire people, delegate, make it so you're kind of hands off, and then go do the second thing. Trying to do two at once um, was really stressful. Uh, my wife probably hated me for much of that time. And um, it was really time consuming. So I, I that that's definitely the the big mistake for sure. Yeah,
0: that's something that we also have to make the decision. We, we were doing wholesaling like I mentioned. So we just decided, you know what, rather than trying to do wholesaling, credit financing and all in single family space and trying to do multifamily We decided our real reason that we're doing this is passive income, and that makes the most sense in multifamily. So we just decided to jump ship. Um, We had some success, of course, but we just wanted to go all in. And that's the most important thing is always being focused on one thing. So I definitely agree with that. Um, You guys are way
1: smarter than me. Look at you.
0: (laughs) I appreciate that. Um, My next question is what is your favorite book? Um, If you like to mention one that refers to your personal life and one that's helped you in your business life?
1: Hmm, Personal life. I can tell you really easily business. Uh, is never split the difference, Chris Voss. So I I think it's the best negotiation book I've ever read. I've been in sales my entire life after college, so I've read a lot of them. Um, but Chris Voss's to me was the most applicable and the most accurate. I think a lot of negotiation books are like written by people at Harvard that are like concerned about the theory of how a negotiation should work, but they don't actually work that way. Uh, so Voss's was like real world, um, stuff that he learned at the FBI through his hostage, you know, he's an ex hostage negotiator, uh, which is how he came up with the title for the book. Never split the difference. I want all my hostages back. You're not getting any of them. Okay. Kill half of them and give me the other half. It's fine. We'll call it even. Right. So that was like the premise of the whole book. It was, so it was entertaining too. Personal. I mean, I don't really read for my personal enjoyment, but if I had to pick one, I would say that the most impact it's had on me, like personally, because of the way that it's kind of shaped my mindset with business and how I run to run my business and what I want my business to look like would be Kiyosaki's flow Quadrant. Um, the idea of being self-employed used to sound really cool until I was and I read that book and I was like, this sucks. Like... I have to answer to myself, I'm crazy and I'm working all the time. Like, I don't want to be self-employed anymore. Like, I want to be a business owner, right? Um, so that was, that one had a big impact on me just because it helped me to really kind of envision, like, okay, I want to, like, a business that's going to work around my life, not my life to be dedicated to running my business.
0: Yeah. Luckily, uh, we both of those books are awesome and we've had like, the opportunity to read both of them. Um, Going into the third question, what is the best piece of advice or your favorite quote that has had the most impact on you?
1: So I've always been a big um, proponent of of paying for advice and training and mentorship. So I paid for um, wholesale education through Wholesaling Inc. And uh, the guy that used to run that was Tom Kroll. I don't know how involved he is anymore. But Tom always used to talk about take imperfect action and put revenue in first position. And so both of those two things, I think, are really important and profound pieces of advice, simple, but things that most people screw up. Most people are so concerned about trying to get everything right that they never take action. And before you know it, a couple days go by where you don't take action it just become something that you never take action on. Um, so and then also, like, just because you're taking action, if your action is, you know, you've never done a deal before and you're hell bent on designing the perfect business card, like you're fucking up, your your mind is not in the right. right place. Like you need to be putting revenue in first position, like your business card ain't going to get sellers to call you and and, you know, do deals with you. Right. Um, so I think both of those were really good.
0: Awesome. Yeah. We completely agree with those. Uh, so going on to my fourth question, do you have a daily habit that has helped you that you would say you could accredit your success to in, in some shape or way?
1: So I wish I could say it's daily. Uh, I'm kind of battling this one regularly, but it's a morning routine and I notice a significant difference in my attitude. Throughout the course of the day, if I actually get my butt out of bed and do this routine or I don't. So, uh, the routine is up at by 530, 5 30, 5, 30, somewhere in that time frame. Uh, meditate, do um, some gratitude, right? Like, not just, oh, I'm grateful to be alive today, like, really feel the gratitude, like, experience the emotion, uh, and then affirmations. And so sometimes it's part of like, it really should take me 25, 30 minutes. Sometimes it takes me like 45 minutes to an hour because I just get caught up in it. Uh, and it's like, you feels good when you're, when you're doing it right. Um, so that one would be it and it will be it. I'm working on that sucker becoming a daily thing.
0: Yeah.
1: The weekend's hard, is, man. Is. With a five month old getting up at five o'clock in the morning okay. on a Sunday, it's okay. like brutal
0: that's something that we've also tried to initiate in our schedule and you're right. Like the difference between your, your attitude throughout the day is immensely different when you're starting it out with a morning routine. Like we are creatures of habit. So, you know, if you start the day out in one way day, if you do the same thing the next day, you're more likely to have a similar day. Um, and on the weekends, when it comes time for like Sunday, if I don't get up at the same time that I did on Monday, it's like my productivity level goes down, you know? So I definitely agree. Um, going on the last question.
1: Yeah. And one of the things that I, I I do sometimes, if I have enough time in there, is I think about goals of mine, but I am thinking about them as I've finished them. Like it's not I want to do X deals; it's I've done this many deals, or my portfolio is this big, or this is what my house looks like, and you paint a really clear picture, and then feel the pride, excitement, happiness, whatever. And then it's like, I think so much of what bogs people down is like, well, what if I fail? Well, like, you almost trick yourself into the fact that you can't fail, because you've already like envisioned it, you've already pictured it, you've already been grateful and appreciative for the fact that you've done it. So now it's just kind of like, well, do I go this way or do I go this way to fulfill and meet that goal? Right. So it's just it's like weird to describe it, but it totally is a different like switch in in how I operate. Like things that come up during the day, if I've done that in the morning, it's just like, eh. Well, you know, everything will work out because I already know that like I've accomplished this goal. It's 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 kind of fun. Yeah, that's, how awesome. It
0: works. that's awesome advice. Um, going on to my last question. Do you have a best place that you would like our audience, if they want to get in touch with you, for them to reach out to you on?
1: Yeah. Um, so I would say check out our check out my Instagram. Um, so I've talked about a couple of different things from my wholesaling to my multifamily. So um I do a little bit of of everything on my Instagram page, talk about like fix and flip stuff, you know, single family rentals, wholesale, multifamily. Um, so my Instagram is at real estate adam 7 and that's the number 7 not spelled out so real estate adam awesome. 7
0: yeah i'll make sure to have, have that in the show notes um we really do appreciate your time adam that's all we had for today but i definitely look forward to staying in touch on bigger pockets and i made sure to follow you on instagram so we really do appreciate your time like i said and um hopefully we'll be able to get you on sometime again thank you yeah, so much it was a pleasure for guys. thanks for having me. have a great day Thank you for listening to the Real Life Monopoly podcast with the Donis Brothers. If you want to learn more about what we do, make sure to visit our website, www.donisinvestmentgroup.com. And if you aren't already, make sure to follow us on all platforms at Donis Brothers. Let's be great today. Have a good one.